I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. We've covered a wide variety of angles on this unprecedented period in history. Deep dives into how the pandemic has affected the economy, how we live, and how we work. But if there's anything that remains a developing story, especially for commercial real estate, it's the movement of people and businesses around the country. On this episode, we take a regional approach, a trip to the southeastern U.S. with a panel of guests who bring decades of expertise and experience in this part of the country. Companies and jobs follow the talent, and there are literally thousands of highly educated college graduates each year that uh, want to stay in the southeast after graduation. That's Ted Klink, CEO of Highwoods Properties, a REIT based in Raleigh, North Carolina. Highwoods focuses on what they like to call BBDs, best business districts with investments across the region. The South has a great cost of living, a really nice climate, uh, both weather and the business climate is quite friendly. And that's Jordy Johnson, the CEO of Johnson Development Associates, a family business headquartered in their hometown of Spartanburg, South Carolina. The company has interests in multiple states and sectors. We're also joined by a pair of seasoned CBRE brokers with a wealth of perspective on trends that are playing out in the Southeast. I mean, we still have great population growth in Atlanta, but they're going to Nashville, they're going to Raleigh, they're going to Orlando, and we're seeing it from the Midwest, just a mass migration. That's Frank Fallon, a vice chairman with National Partners, part of CBRE's Investment Properties Group in Atlanta, and a specialist in the industrial sector. But we are starting to see a lot of institutional capital move into markets that uh, traditionally have been thought of as tertiary in some respects, like a Charleston, like a Greenville, South Carolina. And that's Will Yao. Will is also a vice chairman in CBRE's Investment Properties Group, and he specializes in office. Coming up, real estate with a southeastern exposure. That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to the Weekly Take, and this week we are going to be talking about perhaps the hottest real estate area in the United States, the southeastern United States, which is a large region encompassing Raleigh, Atlanta, if you go further south to Tampa, Orlando, but in any event, whenever people talk about where is the money going, where is the capital going, where are the people going, they're going south to the southeast. And to join us in today's conversation, we have four of the uh, most senior real estate professionals in the southeastern region, starting with Ted Klink, the CEO of Highwoods. Ted, uh, why is the southeast so hot today, Ted? Well, I think, you know, migration to the southeast has really been occurring for a really long time. You know, I think most of the major southeast markets are really at a growing at a rate well in excess of the national averages, and that's been occurring for a long time. And I think there's many reasons why the southeast is a destination of choice. It's really low cost of living, high quality of life, affordable housing, low tax rates, business-friendly environments, proximity to great universities, and a highly educated workforce, not to mention the warm weather. And I think these characteristics are driving population and corporate migration to the Southeast. You know, and I, I'm a believer, Spencer, that companies and jobs follow the talent, and there are literally thousands of highly educated college graduates each year that uh, want to stay in the Southeast after graduation. 
which provides a large and diverse pool of talent to recruit from each year. Well, I would agree with that. And, and a shameless plug, number one, for CBRE's both Tech Talent and Tech 30 reports, the southeastern United States continues to rise, in particular cities like Raleigh, Charlotte, and Atlanta. So, Jordy, from your perspective, and first of all, Jordy, why don't you tell people exactly where you're sitting today um, in a smaller city, uh, but why do you think the southeast is doing so well? I'm sitting in Spartanburg, South Carolina, my hometown and our corporate headquarters, nestled in the foothills of the upstate on I-85 and I-26. We're an hour from Charlotte, two and a half hours from Atlanta, an hour from Asheville, and about three hours from Charleston. The Greenville-Spartanburg metro area has about 1.2 million people, and it's the crossroads of the New South. I would uh, echo a lot of what Ted just said. You know, the South has a great cost of living, a really nice climate, uh, both weather and the business climate is quite, is quite friendly, a great workforce. We've got great higher ed and education system, attractive tax rate, and people are moving here. And as Ted said, companies follow jobs. This is where the workforce is. This is where the knowledge is. People want to have either regional headquarters or consider moving their corporate headquarters here. Uh, there's a lot to like, and, and we're very bullish on the Southeast over the next 20 or 30 years. We think these trends are only going to accelerate. Frank, let's turn to you now. And one of the uh, asset classes uh, of choice, uh, as I call it, the land of milk and honey industrial. It hasn't always been the case, Frank, um, because you've been in this no. business a long time. Tell us how the industrial segment has evolved. Where is it today in the Southeast and how has it gotten better over the last several years? Well, my colleagues, Ted and, and Jordy, mentioned the population growth. And what we've seen is the dynamic of that population growth. It used to be 20 years ago, Spencer, we would see, you know, graduates in the Southeast, majority would head to Atlanta, right? That was where the jobs were. That's not the case today. I mean, we still have great population growth in Atlanta, but they're going to Nashville. They're going to Raleigh. They're going to Orlando. And we're seeing it from the Midwest, just a mass migration. The industrial business, we, we get kidded a lot about how simple it is. Well, here's what it is. It's population growth, which means consumers in your market, which means consumers are buying goods out of these warehouses. And that's what drives this primarily is the goods coming out of the warehouses. So we've seen, obviously, migration from the West Coast, capital moving to the East Coast. They want to invest in the Southeast. They're tired of the high regulations. They're tired of high taxes. We're a business-friendly environment. Well, Frank, at the risk of some of our industrial investors falling out of their chair, why don't you repeat to me some of the pricing that you're now seeing and what you think you can achieve for Class A industrial in the Southeast? Sure. We are in the very low, let's say the Class A, the best of the best, Spencer. So we're in the very low four cap rate range in Atlanta today. We placed a deal in Raleigh, which was not a new product. It's a 20-year-old product at a 4-2 cap rate on a five-year lease. Okay, so it's not just Atlanta. It's these other uh, secondary markets. They're, they're, the secondary markets are becoming primary markets for what we do. And uh, I think the next core deal in Atlanta is going to break through a four. I think we'll be in the upper threes. We've seen it happen in Dallas on a couple deals recently. It's just it's going to come to Atlanta next. We believe in that. Pretty remarkable. I remember uh, when we were trading assets in Atlanta, Charlotte, uh, Raleigh with a seven handle on it not that long ago. Uh, it's 400 basis points, uh, folks. Uh, uh, quite quite a good run. So, Will, let's talk now about office in the southeast. And uh, uh, I don't want to be uh, quite as positive. Uh, it's not the land of milk and honey as it is industrial. But notwithstanding some of the challenges of COVID, 
I think it's fair to say that offices performed a lot better in the Southeast than it has elsewhere in the United States. Would you agree? Absolutely, Spencer, for all the reasons that Ted and Jordy and, and Frank talked about earlier, that there is a real draw to the Southeast by talent, and so companies are following that. And we've all been doing this for a while. Um, I would tell you right now, I've not seen Atlanta experience the kind of growth in headquarter relocations and or major regional office presence uh, as I've seen in the last six to nine months here during the middle of this pandemic. And I think that's just a testament to these companies really being focused about attracting that talent. Um, and that's starting to play out very much in the interest that we're seeing, the demand of capital and investors looking at assets in the Southeast. Um, you know, definitely here in Atlanta, but certainly markets like Charlotte, Raleigh, Nashville, where, where Jordy and Ted are, are, are very active. Uh, they're, they're experiencing some very, very good pricing um, on assets of, of all quality types. Well, let's dig a little bit deeper into that for a moment, Will. Be a little bit more specific, A, about what is the good pricing today, which is where, where it was maybe a few years ago. And then also, uh, I want to follow up on international and other capital coming to the region. Can you comment on that as well? Yeah, sure. So maybe starting with the uh, latter, the international capital has been uh, off the charts, quite frankly. We've seen a tremendous amount of uh, Asian capital, Southeast Asian capital that has been focused in the Southeast just recently. Not that it wasn't previously, but there's a heightened awareness there, European, Middle Eastern. And it's not only just looking at the, uh, what I call primary markets of an Atlanta, but but Charlotte, Raleigh, Nashville, um, you know, we, we've seen that capital be attracted to go into those markets because again, that growth that's taking place there. Um, and so, you know, from, from that perspective, I think from a pricing standpoint, Spencer, as you mentioned, you know, we're not seeing the kind of cap rates that Frank is seeing in the industrial space by any means, but we are seeing some of the lowest cap rates we've seen in office, uh, in my career anyways, um, you know, dipping uh, well well down into the very low fives. And in some situations with the prime assets, we're seeing sub five cap rates into the, you know, upper and even mid fours uh, for the select best assets with the top quality credit tenants. That's still remarkable, uh, you know, given where cap rates were a few years ago. And to note that we are in a somewhat rising interest rate environment today, and we're maintaining those cap rates. So, uh, Ted, I would like to get your perspective as one of the largest office owners in the United States. How's it going uh, in terms of your physical occupancy, your legal occupancy, and what do you see as the future? Sure. You know, physical occupancy today, uh, you know, I think it's somewhere in that 25 to 30 percent range. Um, and that's been pretty steady throughout COVID. I think the large Customers have been largely been remaining at home and the smaller customers we've seen come into the office more. I think what's encouraging is it has ticked up a little bit in the last couple weeks. And what's even more encouraging than that to me is the amount of calls our customer service center is fielding from customers that say, we've now have a plan to come back. And so we're hand-holding a lot of the customers, working with them on their return to work plan. So I'm encouraged, I think in the next you know, 30 to 90 days, we're going to see a slow, gradual pickup. And then sometime between 4th of July and Labor Day, I think we're going to see a lot more returning to the office. So I'm encouraged. Obviously, it depends on continued success of rolling out the vaccine um, and, and how that goes. But in terms of just the future of office, I keep reading about this hybrid working model, how employees have increased, you know, they want increased flexibility and 
uh, the ability to work from home for one or two days a week. And I do think that's going to happen with a lot of companies, but it's too early to know what a hybrid model is going to be. I recently saw a survey just last week or so that said employees want their cake and the ability to eat it too. They want to work from home a couple days, but they want to keep their dedicated desk. So I think it's going to evolve. I think it's going to be different for different companies, different industries, maybe even different departments within companies. But it's going to take a while to figure out and then a while to play out as well. Well, speaking of cake and eating it too, uh, when I got to CBRE 14 years ago, I had three physical offices with my name on the door. One in New York, one in Washington, D.C., one in Baltimore. Uh, Now I have none except, I guess, on my mailbox in my house. But I can't wait to get back into the office, even if it's not a dedicated office, just to be with my colleagues. And I'm sure I speak for everybody else on this call. But let me ask you one more question. Ted, I think it's fair to say that not only are conditions a little bit better in the southeast, but the uh, freedom of movement's a little bit better in the southeast than we're seeing elsewhere in the country. So you own an asset in Pittsburgh. Um, is there any way you can compare and contrast how that, not just the specific asset, but the market is doing versus, say, your assets that are in Atlanta or Charlotte or Nashville? That's a great question, Spencer. I'd tell you, Pittsburgh is more shut down today than any of our other markets. It's obviously the furthest north. It's not in the southeast. Uh, but all of our assets are concentrated downtown Pittsburgh. And right now, you know, our physical occupancy in Pittsburgh is the lowest of our portfolio. The CBD has just been impacted by some of the civil unrest last summer. And most companies are choosing to stay at home until that state and the city open back up again. So it has been slower uh, from an occupancy, physical utilization standpoint today. Jordy, let me turn to you now. Um, I know what we have two of our great experts on industrial and office on this call. But one of the great things about your company, uh, Johnson Development, is that you can do a lot of different asset classes, just generally speaking for a moment. But also because of the pandemic, uh, do any of these asset classes look more or less attractive coming out of this? Spencer, you know, we, uh, we're obviously in four main real estate lines, which you mentioned, lodging, self-storage, industrial, multifamily. They've each been impacted in different ways. Lodging has obviously been the most adversely impacted. Industrial, on the other hand, uh, with the just the increase in all the tailwinds that were already pushing e-commerce has been a tremendous winner. I think going forward, we remain very bullish on industrial. Uh, we love the self-storage space. Multifamily, we're big believers in housing, and that's an asset class that we're gonna lean into over the next several years and increase our presence, both on the human capital side and the physical side of the business. We believe in it long-term. It's uh, an institutional asset class. There's a lot of runway and we think rental housing in the South is gonna be very attractive. We're playing a little bit in the single family sector, mainly around land, um, selling to home builders. Lodging, it's the business we've been in the longest, uh, 25 years, we, we love it. It's different, it's an operating business. It's a spec building every night, a 24 hour lease. We finished the year at sort of 65% occupancy and our rate was down, but we're big believers in lodging. We bought a, we bought a new asset in August and we just went under contract last week on an acquisition in the Southeast. Um, and so we continue to look for opportunities there and we're definitely shifting. Historically, we've been very focused, Manhattan, DC, Boston, really heavy presence in Silicon Valley and the LA Basin. We've pivoted over the last two to three years to Florida, which has really benefited us recently. And we see we're spending a lot more time in markets I wouldn't have traditionally saw us in the Southeast, Wilmington, Myrtle Beach, other places. 
and we think Drive Two Leisure is going to come back roaring this summer. We're already seeing it. We're sold out, out every night in March in Florida for spring break. Well, that's pretty remarkable about Florida now. So this may be a simplistic question, but I'd like to just get your point of view. Are you more or less optimistic about hospitality going forward, given its challenges during COVID? I'm definitely more optimistic than I was 12 months ago. You know, February 2020 was the best year in, in uh, the sector's history. It's going to take, you know, I don't know if business travel ever comes back to that. But I think, as I said earlier, there's tremendous pent-up leisure demand. We're going to see that materialize this summer. I think we are equally bullish on hospitality that we were before the pandemic, but our strategy is going to be different. And it's going to be more focused in the southeast and in leisure markets. I would also say just at the asset level, stress has been mitigated a lot by, by PPP and bank forbearance. So we are generally not seeing a lot of the distressed opportunities we'd expected. We would have put more capital out if we found the opportunities. But, you know, at the asset level, uh, balance sheets have held up better than some might have thought. Spencer, that's a great, great point that Jordy just made about distress in the market. You know, a year ago, March, April, we were getting calls constantly about where's the distress, where is it, where it, it, it and fortunately in the industrial sector it never materialized. But I think that's the difference versus the the great financial crisis, right? There was distress, but we just we didn't have it this time. Jordy, is it? Do you think uh, the distress is is just it's going to come? You just have to be patient, or do you think it's going to work through itself? You know, we hope those opportunities come. I think last year there was a big bid ask spread between sellers anchoring to their 2019 numbers or February 2020 and, you know, the distressed buyers that were calling Frank wanting a 40, 50 percent discount. And banks learned the lesson from 08, 09, 10. They, they worked with their borrowers and, uh, you know, travel recovered. PPP helped a lot of hotel operators. Uh, we still hope to see some of those opportunities. The deal we bought in North Carolina came back to us when someone else fell out of contract. You know, we bought it at a much lower price than we bid pre-pandemic. Um, we are seeing opportunities, but I don't think it's going to be the fire sale that we that you know many people hope for. I will tell you the other good thing about hospitality is lending for new construction is practically non-existent. Um, there's some interest in these acquisition opportunities and in-place cash flows, uh, but even that is is challenging. One of the words that I've been using recently, a lot of people have talked about acceleration of trend, and that acceleration of trend clearly benefits the Southeast from a demographic perspective. But the other word that I use is distortion. And the distortion is that there's so much capital out there that's chasing a relatively small segment of the space, and that includes industrial, it includes cold storage, self-storage, life sciences, data centers, you guys know all the hot areas, that it is causing these cap rates to fall to record levels. But to Jordy's point, it's also causing distressed deals not to be priced at distressed levels. We've sold many loan pools above 90 cents on the dollar. That includes a lot of hotels, and that, that is the distortion that we're seeing. But I do believe it's going to lead to the capital having to come back to multi-tenanted office. So, Will, let me turn squarely to you on that question. Is the capital returning to multi-tenanted office, not just single-tenanted office, multi-tenanted office, and also the situation in the debt capital markets there? Yeah, Spencer, that's a good question because so much of 2020 and, and even as we began 2021, the capital that was most aggressive anyways was very focused on having term and credit. So those single-tenant or few-tenanted lease buildings were where we saw a lot of the activity uh, you know, last year in the heat of the uh, 
uh, of the pandemic. Um, we have definitely seen a turn over the last three months, basically here first quarter of 2021, where capital is understanding that, you know, to Ted's point earlier, that the office is not going away and people want to be back in the office. That in turn has prompted capital to start to look at that. And I think, you know, we, we talked about distress. Uh, Ted knows these numbers better than I do, but uh, the collection rates these owners have uh, received over the last year in office have been remarkable, quite frankly, given the fact that, you know, as Ted noted earlier, physical occupancy is in the 25 to 30, 35 percent range, yet collections have been well over 90, 95, in some cases even higher. So back to your question, the multi-tenant office investments, uh, we've seen an uptick. I I think that's a trend that we're going to see, you know, going forward. Um, That's not to say there's not going to be some uh, distress in the office space, because I think there, there will be to a certain degree, but it's mostly going to be in the lower quality assets, um, the high quality new construction assets. Quite frankly, we think there's, there's a very good possibility that we could see increasing rents and demand for that type of product, because that's what companies are going to gravitate to in order to draw their employees back to the office. Well, I think you're exactly right. We're seeing the flight to quality as well. And I think just in general, the activity we're seeing from a leasing perspective, and I think this will play maybe to the capital markets as well, is the leasing activity in the South is picking up. You know, after a dismal fourth quarter leasing, um, the activity we've seen in our portfolio has picked up materially. I think we're not back to pre-COVID levels, just but the tour activity is probably, depending on the market, 60 to 80 percent of pre-COVID tour activity, and we're converting more of those tours to actual leases now. So we're very encouraged. And the other thing, I'm encouraged by seeing we have companies that are expanding now. They're more confident about their business, and they're going to be hiring more employees. So I think that's just as the economy continues to open up, uh, I'm encouraged by the leasing activity we're seeing. Spencer, the, you know, in Atlanta, 2020 was the second highest net absorption we've ever had. We had two portfolios that were selling during COVID, one with over 300 clients and and the other with over 200. Both portfolios, this is up through the last 13 months, we're over 99% rent collection. And these are class B assets too. So it's not all high credit, single tenant deals. This is the mom and pops. To Will and Ted's point on office leasing, you know, I can speak to that as a customer. We, uh, we decided to open a new office in Tampa at the end of last year. And I thought we were going to go down there and get a great deal and find plenty of opportunities the market was a lot more competitive and a lot tighter uh, than I'd anticipated. Because of the migration trends to the Southeast and business wants to be here, employees want to be here, we were fortunate to find a great partner in home in Highwoods, but it was a much more competitive and expensive market than I expected to see in the middle of a pandemic. One of the questions we get a lot, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, Tampa. Uh, I was on the phone last week with the large Israeli investor and they said, well, what's the next city up? And I said, well, Tampa. And they said, no, it's already up. Uh, it, it's, it's already Orlando. It's already Nashville. So let me ask that question. Give me a sense of other cities in the southeast other than the big ones that you think might have be that next city up. I've got to plug Spartanburg here. It's my hometown and we're here. You know, I, I would say Tampa's definitely already happened. I say Green, Greenville's on the map. People know about it from an office and a multifamily perspective. A lot of net immigration. I think Spartanburg is benefiting from that rising tide. I think Chattanooga, Huntsville, Alabama has got a lot of uh, government contractor, defense type type companies. I think there are a, a number of markets 
that are very attractive. I want to be careful how specific I, <laughs> I get on this call because we are looking around. Are there any areas in the Southeast that aren't doing as well? Uh, maybe I'll turn to you, Ted, on that on that point of view. Do you have a point of view on that? You know, our footprint, we try and be in the higher growth of Southeast markets. So I think we're, we're highly focused on the demographics and some of the things we talked about earlier. Back in 2019, we did make the decision to um, exit the Memphis market. We were in Memphis for over 20 years, and it was a good market for us, but it just didn't have that growth profile. Tennessee is a great state. It's got no state income taxes, but we made the decision to get out of Memphis. Um, other than that, I think you know, all of the markets we're in are growing at well in excess of the national averages and have all those same characteristics we've talked about. There's a old political expression that demographics are destiny. I think demographics are everything in commercial real estate when it comes to uh, talent growth and otherwise. Well, Spencer, it, demographics are, but, but when it comes to a Memphis or a Louisville, it's transportation, right? So I don't disagree with Ted on, on the growth of office in, in Memphis. It is just opposite on the industrial. It's a 5% vacancy right now in Memphis. We are seeing new capital flood to that market right now. They had 12 and a half million square feet of net absorption last year. That's, I think that's number six in the country. I mean, it, it, for a small market. Uh, so we, we are very high on those logistics-based markets. Well, I, I hate to bring up a food comment, but I had one of the best meals of my life at the Rendezvous in Memphis with my 15-year-old son. And then we went down the street to the Cookie Canuck and had these cookies that were made in like a pan. Uh, in any event, uh, one of the best meals of my life. So for my friends in Memphis, great industrial market, great food, and a city on the rise. Not a good market if you're on a diet. There's the one negative comment we'll say about Memphis. Frank, going back to your point on Memphis and capital flows there, obviously it's a great transportation market, and we all say Memphis. But going back to why people are attracted to the Southeast, incentives, taxes, labor, what we really mean is North Mississippi. And correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, North Mississippi has eaten Memphis's lunch when it comes to uh, industrial development. Jordy, we look at it as one, one big market, but you're right. The new development is in North Mississippi. Uh, quite honestly, it's because of land availability also. That's where the land is, but, but yeah, we still do a lot of business on the Tennessee side as well as Mississippi side. Interesting, I, I would tell you, you know, your question about are there markets that are not performing as well? It's really hard to match yourself up against a, a Charlotte, an Atlanta, a Raleigh, a Nashville from a growth perspective. But still, these markets are doing very well. We work in Memphis quite a bit, and it's, it's a tougher market to sell than, say, an Atlanta or a Charlotte. But there still are very strong growth dynamics and metrics behind those markets. And particularly if you compare them against other secondary or tertiary markets in, say, the Northeast or the Midwest or upper Midwest. Um, so it's a relative basis. So, Ted, let me ask you a question. I think it's fair to say that we're still having that argument between CBD and suburban uh, buildings. Uh, do you see any opportunities for conversion into other uses like a life sciences? That's uh, part A. And part B, post-pandemic, putting aside the, the massive conversion to life sciences or, or multifamily, what are some of the changes you expect to see in your buildings from the physical plant uh, to combat or avoid the next pandemic? Sure. Uh, you know, the first question, the conversion, certainly you're seeing it on life sciences, specifically here in Raleigh. Uh, a lot of old one-story industrial buildings are being converted. Entire parks are being bought up just to uh, try and meet the demand for life science. 
uh, in this market. You know, in other markets, we're seeing a lot of creative office, uh, you know, industrial buildings that are in great urban areas that have close proximity to amenities uh, and just good content. We're seeing those buildings get converted to creative office. So I think those are two examples of the type of conversions we're seeing. Uh, in terms of post-pandemic changes in office, look, I think you know, new development's gonna incorporate a lot of the tech, uh, touchless technologies and things like that. Spencer, we've spent a lot of time looking at conversions of particularly lodging to multifamily is the most logical one kind of in our sector. And it's been challenging to make, to make the math work and to make the, the product type work for what the customer wants today. So we have focused more on reflagging hotels, upbranding them, versus changing uses. Uh, we still think new ones every time and ground up developments can be pretty attractive. We are thinking about how we design all of our buildings and improving those. You know, on the industrial side, Frank knows this, we're really leaning in on 36 foot clear and we've kind of redesigned several buildings recently to make sure we have that increased clear height, particularly on more urban locations that I don't want to call them last mile, but are, but are closer to that need. Uh, and we're doing it on smaller buildings than we've done traditionally. You know, on, on all of our multifamily, we're just trying to be as sustainable and green as thoughtful. Uh, we have a big commitment as a company to clean energy and sustainability. We're in the process of developing about 100 megawatts of solar energy in South Carolina. So we're definitely committed to that. We think that you know, investors are going to demand it, customers are going to demand it, and we want South Carolina to be competitive, attracting the next Boeing, Volvo, BMW, Michelin. And I think those users are going to demand cleaner sources of energy than we've traditionally provided as a state. Well, Jordy, I'm glad you brought up ESG because this gives me an opportunity to shamelessly advertise our episode next week, which is entirely on ESG. And we're going to be fortunate to be joined by uh, three CEOs, um, Sonny Kelsey from Bentil, Green Oak, uh, Chuck Leitner, CEO of CBRE Global Investors, and then uh, my great friend, Scott Dennis, the CEO of Invesco. But let's turn now, uh, folks, to infrastructure. And when we talk about regionalism, uh, and I look at the United States, I look at the Northeast Corridor, and they're all connected by Amtrak. Um, but then I take a look at the Southeast, and I see enormous investments being made in airports in places like Nashville. So, Ted, from your perspective first, what's the importance of infrastructure as you make your investment decisions? And uh, I know that Joe Biden is looking to do an infrastructure plan right now. Um, how important will infrastructure be uh, to, for the future of southeastern real estate? Look, I think infrastructure um, its certainly one of the biggest issues that's out there today and really has been for a really long time. So I think just given the growth of our markets, infrastructure is important, whether it's building new roads, airport expansions, or fixing the older infrastructure that we have. So it's incredibly important. I do think our uh, governments in the southeast and our states they're aware of it, they know it, it's on the forefront of their mind, and they're going to figure it out. No major infrastructure project is easy to get funded, never has been, but I think our governments, they're, they're poised to figure it out. And I would just add to that it's not easy to get funded, so that's why there's a big place for private industry, and many of our largest investors have enormous funds squarely targeted at infrastructure. So, Jordy, I'll ask you the same question about infrastructure, and then I hate to quote one of my favorite movies, uh, which do you prefer, planes, trains, or automobiles? Uh, when coming to uh, the types of infrastructure you look for for your projects? Spencer, we certainly look at an area's ability to sustain growth through continuous infrastructure upgrades when we're making investment decisions. You know, this isn't a secret, but Atlanta probably hasn't done as well here as, as a Charlotte or a Tampa. Honestly, we want all three. 
we, we want airlift, we want trains, and we want great roads. You've got to have all three. If, if you made me pick, uh, it depends on the product type and what we're developing. You know, when I think about industrial, I would tell you Memphis and Louisville are two examples of, of Southeast cities that have driven their growth as a result of their air cargo exports. Frank touched on that earlier. I mean, FedEx for Memphis, UPS for Louisville, and we've developed industrial buildings in both markets with a lot of success. You know, for multifamily, you got to have good roads and an ability to get around to jobs. Great. And Will, let me ask you the same question, but I'm going to be specific now that uh, I believe that Atlanta Hartsfield is the number one airport in the world in terms of total volume. And clearly, we have seen a material fall off, and that's probably not going to get back to pre-COVID levels for a couple of years. So number one, the importance of infrastructure for your analysis and sale of office buildings. And number two, what impact do you think that the slowdown in air travel might have on Atlanta? Well, Spencer, I think that the airport is what has driven Atlanta's economy for so long. And, and you're exactly right. It's uh, one of the busiest airports in the world, one of the largest airports and, and by, by many metrics. And I think that that's going to continue into the future. Many of the relocations that we've talked about previously uh, by companies coming here, it's been driven by their ability for their employees and customers to be able to get to where they need to go efficiently, easily, without layover flights, et cetera. And so I, I think that's going to continue. Yes, uh, Zoom, for, a, for lack of a better term, has disrupted some of that business travel and may change certain business travel uh, in, for the foreseeable future. But I do believe there's still going to be a, a significant need for people to travel face-to-face. -face. You know, people want to get together and know each other um, you know, along those lines. So I think that's going to continue to, to make Atlanta's airport be a, a primary driver for growth in this region. You know, that's the same thing. You're seeing that in places like Charlotte, like uh, Nashville, as you referenced, they're, they're expanding their airport, Raleigh. Uh, all of these markets, by the way, you know, we all, we've learned here this past year how global the world is and how connected we are. Um, and so having those international flights that uh, are so important out of some of these major airports uh, are, are, is very important and I think will be even more so important as uh, people uh, want to get back out. There could be a lot of revenge travel that uh, takes place here over the next uh, you know, couple of years, quite frankly, where people want to get back out on the road. You bet, Will. And Frank, last, last to you, and I note that uh, Will used the key word here, uh, I believe, for industrial, which is global. And I would note with interest the uh, ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal uh, caused ripples through the industry. And I understand it's not going to uh, clean up the supply chain for several months before we get back to where we were. So how important is infrastructure uh, to the industrial sector? And what do you look at when you're trying to uh, find great assets uh, for our investors? Well, Spencer, it's critical, right? And, and Jordy hit on it. In the Southeast, we, we are so fortunate to have the number one cargo airport in the world in Memphis, beating out Hong Kong. And we have the number one passenger airport in, in Atlanta. Those are two huge drivers. And UPS, as Jordy mentioned, is right behind FedEx when it comes to that in Louisville. So you see those based in the southeast is a, is a big push. Look, as we travel in other markets that are growing, Charlotte, northern Virginia, there's traffic problems in all those. And I look at it and say, listen, that's growth. I think you can go to some markets where there's no traffic, and that would bother me more. Well, I think it was uh, Yogi Berra said, that restaurant's so crowded, nobody goes there anymore. Um, it's a, or as my dad would say, it's a high class problem to have uh, some traffic problems, which, by the way, they have in Austin, Texas uh, and, and Los Angeles uh, and other cities that we consider to be uh, the major hubs of the United States, if not the world. And so I'm going to ask everybody to go around the horn for your final thoughts 
on the Southeast region, its uh, future prospects, and why they seem so bright. Let's start uh, with you, Jordy. What's your point of view? I think we're going to continue to see the trends that we've talked about. They're going to continue to accelerate. People want to be in the Southeast. We've got a great climate. We've got lower cost, non-union labor, business-friendly governments, incentives, great, particularly higher ed, and K through 12 is improving. There's a lot to like. Uh, as we talked about earlier, natural resources, mountains, beaches, lakes. Um, the people are here, the jobs are here, and companies want to be here. Ted, your point of view. Not a lot to add. I think it was a great answer. Uh, I'm as excited as I've ever been about our footprint. I think the acceleration to the southeast is just going to continue to accelerate, and uh, I think we're poised to capture a lot of demand going forward. Frank. Pro-business environment and a great place to live in the southeast. Two good things. Will. Spencer, I really you know, echo everything that the other three have said, but I, I would really tie it back to talent. Um, I think that uh, the, the tech talent that's here and the, the draw of all of those things that Jordy was talking about <clears throat> are going to make the Southeast really a strong winner, if you will, uh, going forward here for uh, the foreseeable future. Okay, and now for the last, last question. Who is going to win the Masters this week? which is airing the same week as this episode. Starting with you, Ted Klink, who's your pick? Dustin Johnson's going to uh, do a repeat. He's had a couple bad weeks, but I think he's getting his game in shape this week. Jordy Johnson. You know, I got to go with my fellow South Carolinian DJ. Frank Fallon. Oh, my gosh. Let's go over to Will. Will Yow. You know, Spencer, I'm, I'm going to go a little uh, off here, but I'm hoping that uh, Rory McIlroy finishes the Grand Slam and gets it done this year at, uh, at Augusta. Okay, Frank Fallon. You... I I'm, I'm, I'm just wrote down Dustin Johnson before this guy said it, but I, I hate for us all three to be on the same. That's, that's a kiss of death for him. All right, well, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say Daniel Berger, because Daniel Berger was very upset when he was shut out of being able to play in the Masters in November. He's got a little chip on his shoulder, and he's top 15 in the world. So with that, uh, I want to thank four of the truly great real estate leaders in the southeastern United States. Gentlemen, Thank you. Thanks, Spencer. Thank you. Thanks, Spencer. For more insights on the development of the Southeast and the future of work, check out our newest reports, Managing Corporate Real Estate, Leading and Emerging Practices, and Labor Analytics, Tech Boom Interrupted, both of which could be found at cbre.com slash the way forward. And for more on our show, including our latest 2021 Southeast U.S. Outlook, a thoughtful analysis of market conditions across 18 different markets in this region. Please visit cbre.com slash the weekly take. We welcome your feedback and suggestions and always appreciate when you share our show and subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. Thanks again to all our great guests for their Southern hospitality and insights. And thank you, as always, for joining us. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.